Thanks for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast, where we bring together philanthropy scholars and fundraising practitioners to better understand the world of nonprofit development. What is being studied? What trends affect donor decisions? We'll bridge the gap between theory and practice to understand the future of philanthropy and how to make mission. Some are calling it the great resignation. Others, including the guests on this episode, see it as the great opportunity. No matter how it is viewed, nonprofit boards and executives must work together to navigate transition seamlessly, which often includes hiring and onboarding new nonprofit leaders. I'm Anna Shalia, Vice President at Graham Pelton and PhD student studying philanthropy. My mission is to bring theory to practice, to highlight empirical knowledge from the fields of nonprofit management, organizational behavior, and philanthropy, and pair it with practical experience. Welcome to the Make Mission podcast, where we bring together philanthropy scholars and fundraising practitioners to better understand the world of nonprofit development. On today's episode of Make Mission, we learn what the research and practice tells us about board members and the unique role they play during leadership transitions. During this time, what does a supportive, engaged nonprofit board look like? How can board members flourish as they stretch their capacity to assess the needs of the organizations and identify and onboard new leaders? To answer those questions and more, we've invited two amazing leaders to our podcast, Dr. Amanda Stewart and Sally Bryant. Dr. Mandy Stewart is an associate professor at North Carolina State University and researcher on nonprofit executives, executive transition management among nonprofit boards, and board management of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sally Bryant is president and CEO of executive recruiting firm Bryant Group and is known for elevating both human and organizational capacity so that they thrive together. Let's jump into it. In 2020, Mandy, your article was published titled No Room for Failure, Investigating Board Leadership in Nonprofit Executive Transitions. I know that much of your research agenda has been around board of trustees and board involvement. Can you share with us a little bit more about how this study came to be? So my research uh, builds upon my dissertation. There's kind of an academic joke, if you will, that your dissertation shouldn't be your life's work, but uh, my dissertation has certainly been a pivot, and that's where I started much of my rabbit hole of research on executive transition. And through those that research that engaged first the incoming executive in a research study to hear their perspective on what it was like to fill the shoes uh, of who they had succeeded behind, as well as the board members, um, I, I revisited these questions with some coordination with the Alliance for Nonprofit Management folks, a couple of, of consultants who are affiliated with that association. And what we did was we we scoured board our, our job posting walls just to see where boards were in the midst of this search to talk to board members at that that pivotal moment in time. And then we returned to some of those boards who had engaged us again after they had filled the position. And so, you know, where I engage this research is just appreciating how critical boards are to the functioning of an organization. And that we certainly have a lot of research and practitioner guidance on what boards should be doing, but too little on what they actually do. And that's where I've tried to kind of hit that sweet spot of, of what do boards do to fulfill their responsibilities. And what I find so interesting about an executive transition 
is this is really the spot where boards go it alone. That so often they're coupled in that shared leadership structure, walking alongside an executive. But but in the transition, it's really up to their own leadership metal and strength to, to navigate the organization through this pivotal moment. Sally, I'd love to hear more about your experience with, uh, with your work and your work with the Bryan Group, working with boards who, as Amanda has said, are on their own at this moment in time. What has been your experience working uh, at this juncture? I first want to say I have great admiration and respect for nonprofit board members. Um, I have been one myself. It is almost always an unpaid position. Uh, however, the returns in the difference that you get to make in the world are, are worth a lot. However, you have to have someone that's very passionate about the mission. And when it comes to a CEO transition, the amount of time, which I also thought that was interesting in Mandy's research, the amount of time that it takes a board to do this and do it correctly um, really does show their dedication. So I just want to give a shout out to all the board members on non uh, nonprofit board members out there. A couple of things that I will say um, that we uh, see in board involvement and motivations um, in making this change is that we are noticing sort of we're noticing a lot of trends, but but three that I would really that really come to mind for today is ensuring that there is an equitable process as as boards really focus on ensuring that they're diversifying their entire teams as well as their leadership, um, and that they're being fair not just to every candidate but also to their organization. Organizational health has become an intentional focus and. I mean, strategic focus on health in terms of, yes, fiscal management and programming responsibility, but also in terms of good emotional, interpersonal relationships among your leadership team and your leader and their organization. And then the third thing, no surprise to Graham Pelton, fundraising has become ever more prevalent as something that boards are really looking for expertise at. Mandy, would you describe those those three areas of expertise that Sally talked about as being a priority that was outlined by the board members you researched? I will say embarrassingly that at the time we did this study, Equity was not on the forefront. Um, it was even an afterthought to our own like kind of questions. Uh, and then when we elevated it as a specific question, we heard really limited responses. I would love to revisit that question in this environment, and I certainly see it as a driver. Um, I will say just even, you know, beyond my research, just how I've come to think of equity in a search is where when we've talked to boards who rely on their networks for, for new executives, how constrained they are to, to pull in different perspectives and to think about equity uh, beyond what they know and what's familiar. And so just seeing that's where, you know, folks who come in to support like recruiters, like search firms, like search consultants, just how that expands what a board's able to do. And so I would certainly say if that's a priority that I would see my research would support that that's where an executive search firm could add, be a value added to the board's function. 
Part of the research described in this study described the phases that boards sort of work through when they are engaging in a search. So talking about this preparation phase, then moving into the search criteria are created, recruitment is conducted, and then moving into the third phase or the phase of finding this new executive director. And then we would imagine there's onboarding and mm-hmm. and then we can move into the other theories of storming and norming mm-hmm. and all of that. But Mindy, when you think about some of the previous literature on on this phases that boards go through, would you say it is still the same in 2022 as it might have been 10 years ago? I think where I would respond is that I think those four phases are still relevant, but are they always attended to as as the the clip of life and organizational dynamics. And I even appreciate Sally bringing up organizational health as this like need to get to what's next um, hastens. That I think sometimes I would imagine organizations are are hasty in how they proceed without doing that due diligence in the organizational work. Um, Just an organization that I'm personally familiar with is, is trying to skip like understanding who they are before they jump into an executive transition. And that's where I think those four phases prompt an organization to just sit with that before they jump into casting it on and burdening a new leader to help define who they are. Um, So that's where I would say, I think we should, that's where the literature can describe what we should do and we should do it. But do we always do it? No, because life happens at a quicker pace. Absolutely. Sally, I think we're describing soul searching, the soul searching that organizations need to do maybe after they're after they're dealing with a heartbreak or they've just received this resignation from somebody who's doing incredible work or maybe they didn't have the tenure that they thought that they would have. You're probably getting a phone call somewhere around this phase. Can you describe uh, the stages of that the board members are going through? Uh, it, it can be an emotional time for a board because they suddenly feel the weight of the responsibility of the day-to-day and not just the responsibility of policy and governance. Uh, I, I do believe on those phases, too, that, that boards who are doing this in an intentional manner are doing what Mandy said about s- sitting with it. You know, sitting with who they are, and and that is one of the very first things in the early phases that boards need to understand what are their current core values and what are their aspirational values. What is their current situation and what is their vision for the future? Because those things are actually going to help in that search preparation stage where we we recommend and we work with our clients to create a rubric, which I can explain more in a little bit if you're interested, but it is a rubric that helps them get to what they need in their next leader. And it starts with that understanding where they are and where they're going. The rubric also helps create equity in the process. And I think, you know, in the things you mentioned, like things have changed and things have changed really quickly uh, due to several world events that we're all aware of over the past couple of years. One of the things we're seeing with boards as they go through this is they have to understand the very, very, very quickly changing market. So we have from February of 2020 
We have 0.8 unemployed people for every one job opening. This is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Then we get into the pandemic, and in June of 21, so that's less than a year ago, there were almost five unemployed people for every job opening. Five unemployed people for one opening. By June of last year, we were already up to one to one. It changed that fast. From April was five unemployed people for every job opening. June is one person unemployed for every job opening. You know where we are now? Well, March is the latest statistic. One half of a person for every one job opening. So for every person who's unemployed, there are two jobs available. And the ramifications of that for boards, the increased pressure on a timely search, a highly proactive communicative search, an understanding of the upward pressure on salaries, and the need to go proactively recruit people who aren't on the job market is making a huge difference for boards in how they look at these searches. Are you asking more of your boards in the search process? Are you asking them to participate at different levels? That's a great question. I don't know if it would be a different level of engagement. I think it would be a different kind of engagement. That boards need to understand when when they're working with an outside search firm that this is a, a partnership and that we may have a view on the market that they haven't had to have. Now, some of them do because they're corporate leaders or other nonprofit leaders, but just understanding things such as salary surveys right now aren't relevant. If they have not done a survey of of CEOs who have started their jobs in literally the last three months, Their salary survey is irrelevant because the the salaries have changed that quickly. And and of course, we could talk about, uh, I won't go too far down the rabbit trail. There are other things that can help make up for if you have a real budget constraint, that kind of thing. But but they just need to, I, I just feel that we're partnering with boards in a different way. We have to be consultants. We're executive search consultants. And just like a fundraising consultant, just like a management consultant, we are there to help them understand the market and how to react to that differently and how to be proactive differently. Mandy, if you could wave your magic research wand and conduct a study in spring 2022, what would be something that you would really want to know right now about how boards are engaging with this executive search work, knowing that while your study is very recent and very comprehensive, so much has changed. What do you wish you knew? I'd love a research wish list to be graded. Um, And and I'll admit, I'm a little influenced right now. um, Just before I jumped on, I'm previewing and planning to roll out later this month a study talking to boards about how they think about diversity. We we make so many guesses, I think, about what happens in a boardroom. And 
when we engage with the board, we're talking to one board. And so to really understand across a, a swath of boards, a swath of organizations, how boards are thinking about conceiving of making decisions about boards, that's my latest curiosity I'm chasing down. Um, so I'm certainly influenced by that. I would also be curious to hear how boards are watching the, the dynamics of the larger workforce, and that's certainly what Sally was speaking to, but recognizing where the ripple effects hurt their hurt their staffing. Just talking to the, in the driveway last night to a neighbor who works for a national nonprofit, y'all would all know the name of, and she's now gone from three layers below the executive to no layers below the executive because of turnover. And she was actually thinking of her own resignation, but now seeing a very different dynamic. Just understanding how boards are acknowledging and mindful of that dynamic of just what it means to secure a workforce in this environment, not just like at the top or the C-suite, but that trickle down of morale and how that's guiding their, their choices, guiding how they think about retention and benefits and, and just safekeeping of their staff. Um, that would be a curiosity because I don't, I think sometimes we think boards are immune to the dynamics that happen below who they see and interact with at a board meeting, but I would imagine they're very aware of it and just how are they, how are they checking that pulse of the, the health of their staff? That's an interesting question. How are they? How do they understand the the morale? How do they understand what's happening when there is an executive director and things are moving along, and then when that person submits their resignation, and all of a sudden they have that responsibility? We're seeing more and more the the implications of this turnover of this great resignation. The questions that people are asking of where are the fundraisers? <laughs> Where did where did they go? And what happens, I believe, because the people who are drawn to this profession are we we want to care for our donors. We want to care for our organization. So all of a sudden, when your staff is down half or a third, you're stepping in, you're filling those roles. So we're seeing this dual crisis of needing to fill these positions as well as maintaining, the quite literally the health and well-being of the staff who's stepping up, filling in, sending those acknowledgement letters, making those phone calls that maybe that normally wasn't wasn't on their to-do list. And then Sally, my question for you is, and then maybe these folks are participating with you on a search or maybe they're fulfilling these interim roles. What are you seeing right now when it comes to to morale, to mental health, to ability to do their jobs? What's happening in our industry there? Mandy mentioned the trickle down effect, and that's really what you're what you're getting at. And I mentioned organizational health earlier, and one of the things that I believe is really important in organizational health is truly the health of each individual as well as the health of your team as a team. And it might seem counterintuitive to hear an executive search firm CEO say that I believe one of the most important things in an organization is to help employees with their internal career path. Because that growth within the organization is, is important not just for the person, 
but for the organization. Those people have institutional history, institutional memory, and that developing them as a person and developing their career actually helps people feel loyalty and be more loyal to their organization because they're getting something intrinsically fulfilling and they're getting to develop professionally and those things contribute to organizational health. We're very passionate about great leadership, whether it comes internally or externally. So we think that focusing on your people and creating that career path is really important. Another piece of that, and you mentioned the great resignation, you've probably seen, I like the other side of the coin, and I like to talk about the great opportunity, uh, because right there's always two sides to a coin. And I mentioned earlier that we now have two job openings for every one job. Well, that's in the whole labor market. I don't know what the statistics are in nonprofits and in fundraising, but I wouldn't be surprised that that they are even more, that there's a wider disparity. There might be one person for every four jobs open. A lot of people in fundraising and even in nonprofit leadership, whether it's the CEO or maybe the, the next level, the C-suite, were let go during as soon as, you know, in the beginning stages of the pandemic. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Suddenly programming revenue was down. Um, hospitals didn't have elective surgeries going on. I mean, there was just a lot of income issues. And so people were getting let go. When people saw that in 2020, we had a record $417 billion given philanthropically in this country and they suddenly went, oh my goodness, people are still giving and we need that money more than ever. Not only did they start hiring those people back, they started adding to their fundraising staffs and then also other parts of their staff to beef up. We have a huge disparity in the number of people that are available and have experience in these areas and the number of jobs that are open. The reason that is the great opportunity, because it doesn't sound that great, right? <laughs> the reason that's the great opportunity is because this is an opportunity to help diversify our profession and to bring people in who've been looking for something more meaningful in their lives. And the rubric I mentioned earlier is a great way to do this. So if you have a rubric and you, that you use with your board, I'll describe the process very simply. We ask the board, Number one, what's your vision for the future, right? That's sitting with where are you now? Where are you going? What leadership characteristics would you need to get there? Then we take all of that information and we come up with their top 8, 10, 12 characteristics that they're looking for. We take it back to the board and individually they rank their top four. We take those top those rankings and we use a formula to come up with their top three to five characteristics that they need in a leader. And that happens before they've ever seen a potential candidate name or information. Because then when they get into the process, they can compare candidates against what they have told us they need. We did this, if I can tell a quick story, we did this with a healthcare foundation recently and. They said, I mean, when we did this in the rubric, like internal leadership was number one by a factor of maybe three. Not understanding of healthcare, 
not even understanding of social determinants of health. Those were important, but they weren't number one. Number one was internal leadership. And when we got to the three finalist candidates, they, I sat with the board right there in the room together and they said, how, how are we ever going to choose? This one has this strength. This one has this strength. This one has this strength. We think they'd all be amazing. I pull out the rubric and I say, this is what you said you wanted. And they chose someone who had never been in healthcare, who had the internal and external leadership skills. And he went in and immediately created an impact at that organization. He wasn't what they thought they might have been looking for. And in that, in that search, we ended up with very diverse candidates, background, race, gender, and experience. That's amazing. This really is the opportunity moment. This is the moment for that opportunity. Thinking about your rubric, I'm, I'm thinking back to your study, Mandy, and some of the reoccurring skill set or themes that your board members or survey mm-hmm. participants uh, re- said that they valued and up there was fundraising track record, marketing, or the increased visibility of the organization. And then what Sally just mentioned, that organizational collaboration skills and experience, and then financial management and acumen. I'd be curious to hear from you uh, what surprised you when you surveyed that group of what they, what they said they want, what do board members want? No, I'll tell you, more than just what they wanted, I think what surprised me was how they would go into a search wanting something, and then when they were presented with a slate of options, how they would get detracted or distracted um, by what their options were. And, and it was a bit of the bright, shiny object, somebody who interviewed well, somebody who made connections, was a connection. And so just where a board can a bit needs to find ways to take stay anchored to what drives their interest. And so just that would be a consideration I would say is just to, how do you keep those, those objectives in front of you and return to them as you're presented with options? I mean, I just know it, it's always easy to get distracted when you see pretty things, you know, but just to to make sure that you're staying tethered to what the, the objective is for the organization, even at the highest level. I would agree 100%. It does really help to have those characteristics laid out out front. I think that the old way of bringing in a a few friends of the organization and seeing who might be the best leader, and, and don't get me wrong, we do ask board members for their nominations and their referrals because they know amazing people in their networks. But really having an intense, thorough, robust process Nothing is 100% fair, right? We are human beings, but to make it as as fair, again, to the candidates, but to the organization as possible. Like Mandy said, we're looking for being true to the organization, its mission, and its vision for the future. And that is what, that's a win for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd follow that even just to say one of the boards, and I forget which study it was, there's been too many conversations, but they thought they had an heir 
if you will, like I called it the heir apparent, you know, just the person who had been groomed and they failed to do that vetting and, and it accepted that person and it turned out to be a failed candidate, essentially, where they were launched back into a search just several months later. So just acknowledging even when you think you know who's the right candidate, how that fair process will serve you and also lend credibility and legitimacy to who's appointed um, that invites trust, both internal and external, to the organization. Mandy, thank you for that comment because one of the things that I haven't heard a lot of uh, people talking about, but that I believe is so important in choosing the right person and in helping ensure diversity is to, so we used to talk, we used to talk about the word fit. Now we don't talk about fit much anymore because fit can mean, does this person look like everyone else? Does this person think like everyone else? Does this, did this person go to the same school as everybody else? What we look for now more is alignment with vision, alignment with core values and alignment with the mission of the organization. But what I want to say is that that with diversity, you again, race, gender, thought, philosophy, background, all of those things, we want a rich, robust tapestry. Lots of differences, lots of input, lots of different ideas. What we look for alignment on are those things I just mentioned, especially mission and core values. The alignment comes in the core values. If you all agree that this is who we are and this is how we act, then diversity is encouraged and it brings the best outcome for success because you all have this foundation where you're aligned. I'd be curious to to learn from both of you, now that we've talked through how board members perceive this process, how we work in identifying that alignment. Now let's look at the, the other side. If you're a candidate right now, the world is yours. You can go wherever you want, maybe. <laughs> if you're a good fundraiser, and maybe you're trying to ask the question, what do I really care about? What's my mission? Where might I want to take my skills and my talent? I'd be curious to hear uh, what advice and suggestions you would give to these candidates out there right now for an executive nonprofit position. Advice to candidates. The world is your oyster right now. Right? But what you just said, Anna, is... This is an opportunity to really explore what are you passionate about? What is going to make a difference in your life intrinsically? Because this is an opportunity where you probably don't just have to take a job for taking a job. I mean, I think most people who work in nonprofits are trying to find some place where they align with the mission. But I do think candidates get to be a little bit more choosy now. Now, saying that, I will also say that board members, search consultants, people, people are people. So the respect of the people who are hiring 
and transparency with the people who are hiring will make a huge difference in finding the right job and starting that job on the right foot. We expect candidates, even those we have proactively recruited, so we the majority of our candidates are people that we go and find for your job who are probably so busy being successful where they are, they didn't even know you had a job opening, right? So they might not even be on the job market. Even those people, once their mind is opened to a new opportunity, may be more open to another opportunity. So we know that candidates could very well be in more than one search. I will say to candidates, there is no downside to being transparent about being in more than one search. There is no downside. If you are a top candidate, the client wants to know that. Maybe they will speed up their search process to ensure that you get to be in it. It will also help both the organizations and the search consultant understand the salary ramifications of their search. What is the market telling us today? Because as I mentioned, that's probably different even than December of 2021. So definitely, I would say the number one thing is transparency. And number two, follow your heart. Always follow your heart when you're working with a nonprofit. Mandy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, and I'll say that sage advice to follow on. Um, you know, I think when I went into executive transition research and talking to executives, I was expecting to hear folks who were like at the final position of their career. And, and it's not the terminal degree that I think we make it out to be or what we sometimes see elevated in the for-profit sector of, you know, people who are frankly nearing retirement age. And so I would say one would just to be thinking about how this organization is going to support you in your own career development. Especially, I, I called them stepping stone nonprofits to recognize with the flat hierarchies that some executives move between nonprofits rather than within nonprofits. Just because to get to bigger and better, you have to go elsewhere. And so just how is that organization going to support you and, and cultivate you as well as how does that position network you into other opportunities and connections. The other part I would say, and I think Sally echoed some of this, was uh, just that the support that brought you into the position is going to follow you as you walk the path of the position. This is where how critical that onboarding is and that handoff. Too often I heard boards just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And, and you know, I even just remember one ex uh, board member I even talked to talked about, you know, like we just laid out the doormat and like that we got out of the way. And no, boards need to do more than just be, you know, opening the door and say the organization's yours now. But but to follow that support, yeah, don't wipe your hands of it. And so just to, to acknowledge, you know, expressing what you're going to need in that ramping up stage and designing it to your benefit. Again, too often in my research, I heard stories where the board had hung on to unhealthy relationships with outgoing executives, maintaining where it just hampered and hindered the new executives' stature and, and legitimacy in the organization. And so just where being an, you know, an executive market, if you will, where they have more of a voice to express exactly what do I need to be successful in, in, in working with their board, partnering with their board to get that. 
I find the most successful candidates ask about and understand the values and the culture of the organization that they're going to, not just its mission, not just its vision, and not just what experience they're looking for. That alignment helps determine longevity and success in a way that no resume ever could. What do you think it is, though, about that, about that inquiry, about culture? What, what do you think folks are trying to, to uncover? What do they want to, they want to know what they're walking into, right? Mm-hmm. But what is, what, what are the specifics you think they're looking for? That's great. I'll give you some specific questions. I would recommend that a candidate ask, right? Not the interviewers asking the candidates, but the candidate asking the organization. Number one, what are your core values? Because if they have not defined them, that tells you something right there. And and if they have not, then there's other questioning. Is that something you'd like to do? That's something I would like to bring in and determine. Core values are already there. Whether you've defined them and articulated them or not, that's different than aspirational values. Core values are already part of your culture. Uh, Most organizations these days, I give them so much credit. Almost every organization knows its core values. So if they tell you, these are our core values, my next question as a candidate would be, I would like an example, a story that, that exemplifies each one of those values that includes one of your employees or your leaders or your board members. What does it mean? right? One of our core core values is proactive communication. Well, that might mean one thing to one person and it might mean something else to someone else. So an actual story that shows what the core value means. If I'm a candidate, I start to understand, am I in alignment? Would I fit in? Do we, are we on the same page? Are we on the same foundation? And, and, And if not, I I mean, another example, one of our core values that everybody always remembers is moxie. So someone talking to me about working at Bryant Group, if they say, you know, I don't really like to take risks and that seems really scary to me and being creative and courageous, which is how we define it, it, that just doesn't sound fun. Then they know that this isn't the right place for them. And I think for every leader, you want to know, are you going into a into the right place. And then you want to also see where are they at in the future? I understand your values now. What are your aspirational values? And if you're on the same path, that helps you know if you're going into the right organization. So I'd love to hear from both of you. How should we put this? Best dressed, worst dressed, best case scenario, worst case scenario. I'd love to hear how boards have handled this transition beautifully well with Grace maybe a story or an example there, and then maybe uh, a board that really didn't do themselves any favors in this, uh, at this moment in time. Mandy, do you, do you want to get started? Gosh, I, you know, it's terrible thing about research is what stands out as the worst case, because there is just somewhere it's just like, 
did you ever pick up a book that might have told you how to do this? And, and I will say some of the the worst case, because the board's not so great on telling on themselves. It's the executives who tell. And so I'll even one going back to my, or both, I think, even going back to my dissertation, so clearly they left an impression, was an organization that has had like seven or eight executives in as many years. And the executive I happened to talk to said, the board has to recognize its culpability. They, we can't all be idiots. Just acknowledging like, you know, you got to look at your own, your own stuff before you keep pinning it on somebody else's. Who's the lowest common denominator? So how does a board do kind of the after action, understand where it was challenged in the transition? Another executive I spoke to, so I'm really only coming up with worst case, sorry, or um, worse dressed, you know. No, it's okay. We're, we'll learn from them. We'll yeah. Learn from them. No, it was one where, you know, they just had not told the executive the full story. And so the poor executive just suffered under the weight of past failings that just uh, didn't come out in the open. And frankly, the outgoing executive revered and loved as he was had done a good job of hiding them. And so what a burden that was to the new executive. And so just, you know, that transparency Sally talked to and just to have that openness and for the or the executive to have that opportunity to kind of do their own due diligence. I remember that that organization said something like, you know, if we had told the truth, you wouldn't have gotten into it. Well, precisely. Maybe we shouldn't have gotten into it. So those two come to mind and I've got others, but I'll I'll leave those for another day. Mandy, it's funny because the transparency piece is actually what came to my mind too. And I will say that I had worked with a board that blew my mind in how well they handled transparency of a difficult situation. So this board, this is one of the great boards that I've worked with. They were candid and open from the beginning. They were respectful about what they wanted in the process and what our piece of the process is and listen to our guidance. They had an issue that had been, actually they'd had a consultant come in and research the issue and write a report. And it was going to be something that the new CEO was going to need to handle. And as with most organizations, it when you have a problem, it's messy. There is no black and white. There's lots of gray. And so I was blown away to have the board say to me from the very beginning, we have this issue. There's a big report. Let's talk about whether it makes sense for you to see all the messy details. And what we decided at that point was I needed a high level understanding of what was going on. I did not need to know all of the messy details. But even better was when we got to our three finalists, the board chair spent 30 to 45 minutes with each finalist. They hadn't made an offer. They hadn't chosen anyone. They took each finalist and said, here's what's going on. Here's the report. And we want you to know that of all the great things that are going on here, and there are many, and you've heard about them all, and it's exciting time and all of that, there's this piece that may really need some attention right away. And you know, it was so brilliant. 
It was so perfect because then they could get the right person. Someone was coming in with their eyes open. None of the three candidates dropped out. And they knew that was the kind of board they were going to get to work with. I was just, I was in awe. It's exactly how I would have consulted for them to do it, but they had it figured out on their own. They didn't even need my recommendations. Thank you both for sharing uh, best dressed, worst dressed of, of this process. I think one of the lessons we learned, which we talked about earlier in the conversation, was the need for boards to be aware of this current market that so much has changed. And also I'm hearing their need to be uh, flexible, creative, open to new ideas, open to new suggestions, that there are signing bonuses, that there is an opportunity or a potential opportunity for a candidate who hasn't previously worked in that sector, but their skill set aligns with what the organization needs at the moment. And this is going to require a lot of uh, new thinking, a new mindset from some of these board members and some of these board chairs as they approach this. And perhaps it's a sign of just the times, but we haven't brought up even succession planning. And I would say, you know, I think that that's a bit of, it can feel like it's a bit of a luxury and it can feel like organizations need to know who and what and when and how, but I think some of it's just setting in place to fill in the blank roadmap that just so that we're ready for these conversations and we're aware so that we're not just caught off guard, but we've done some thinking about how would we jump in on this? How would we proceed? But I'd say even short of that, something that came in my research was emergency planning. And and I just even think of here locally, we had a beloved executive die over a weekend. And so that board scrambled to to come up with a plan of how to fill that role. I can imagine even just the need for short-term leadership during COVID was paramount for some organizations dealing with COVID infections and so forth. So I just think of boards to think through kind of those those necessities of leadership, not luxuries, but just how would we sustain? How would we survive? How would we get to the next point from this leadership perspective? Seems pertinent. Absolutely. And I think so much of the way that leaders are describing their role right now, um, when we talk to chief advancement officers or chief development officers or executive directors, they say things like, my job has turned into crisis manager. Mm-hmm. And that that's now so much a part of the work that they do. It makes sense that that responsibility should also be with the board. And I think you're absolutely right that it might come across as uh, as a luxury or we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah. We'll cross that succession bridge when we get there. No, you won't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get that on the agenda right now. Um, I think you're absolutely right that Unfortunately, our environment right now, there there are crises. There are natural disasters. There are um, pending recessions. There, there's so much that's happening that for the board to consider the financial health of its organization as their responsibility, they would also be responsible for these situations that may arise. And how are they prepared for that? Mm-hmm. Sally, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have to say that I could talk about, I think we could do a whole additional podcast on interim leadership and crisis management. You don't want to cross that bridge when it's burning. 
you you want that bridge to you want to know where you're going you want to know how you're getting there and and there's so many different scenarios so no i i think it's a really important topic probably one that we don't have a lot of time to go into today but that um succession planning and that career path growth from within an organization those are two things that i believe are are paramount to organizational health. So again, maybe a whole other topic, but a really important one and something that boards need to be thinking through for that all important uh, foundation of organizational, cultural health and sustainability as well as scalability. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for your time, for your expertise, for sharing with us today what you know of these board members uh, and their huge responsibility, but also the tremendous work that they're doing in our society. So thank you so much for sharing what you know. We're so glad to have you on the Make Mission podcast. Thank you, everyone, for just joining this conversation. Glad to engage it. And, and I'll say that when I've talked to board members about where they go for information so often, they go to the, the internet, they, they Google. And, and so I certainly hope this podcast shows up in the results because I've enjoyed and engaging that conversation. Anna, I'd like to thank you for having me today. And I'd like to thank Graham Pelton. And I have especially enjoyed my conversations with Dr. Mandy Stewart. It's been fantastic to be part of this conversation with you. And I do want to give one final just word of gratitude to all the board members out there who serve these nonprofits. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast. Our mission is to elevate philanthropy so nonprofits can flourish. To learn how we do it, visit podcast.grampelton.com. <laughs>